0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Autism in the Adult Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Teresa Regan, a neuropsychologist, certified autism specialist, and the parent of a teen on the spectrum. This is the second episode in a series of four on the topic of regulation and dysregulation on the autism spectrum. Last episode, we talked about what regulation and dysregulation are why it's important to talk about these states as they relate to the autism spectrum. And we talked about types of regulation. For example, there is regulation that has to do with the continuum of alertness. So is somebody able to wake up and get going versus are they able to really calm down and settle into sleep? There's regulation of attention. Are they able to focus their attention and hone in on something that's important? And then are they able to release that attention and let something go when it's no longer the most important thing? And there's also regulation of emotions, being able to be psychologically aware and present but not overwhelmed by the strength of an emotion to the point where the person reacts with fight, flight, or freeze mode. And freeze can include shutting down, dissociating, and I also include in there the expression of stress or struggle through physical systems. So that could look like a seizure, uh, but it's actually an expression of stress. It could look like a staring spell, Uh, physical weakness, that type of thing. So the neurology of autism does place the individual at a higher risk for struggling with dysregulation, at least for some seasons of their life. And when the individual does struggle with something in life, it very often will uh, lead to this problem of dysregulation states. And this may be what leads them to ask for help or assistance. So one of the things we want to do, in addition to recognizing dysregulated states, is to have a strategy for life that helps reduce the number and the intensity of dysregulated episodes or seasons, and to reduce the amount of time it takes the individual to recover after a dysregulated state, how long it takes them to get back to that center uh, and become Uh, more balanced, more in their just right state. When we talk about ways to reduce the frequency and intensity of dysregulation, uh, the first thing I'm going to mention has to do with how people build their life and their schedule and make decisions about what they're going to commit to or participate in. So one of the biggest mistakes that I see people make is to build a day or a season or a life around what interests them and what they want to do. And I remember speaking to a school counselor one day about a female student who was struggling to remain in school each day And in speaking about the student, the counselor expressed her frustration in trying to understand the student's needs because she said, you know, the student wanted to go to the pep rally. And then they were so overwhelmed that they had to leave school. So that statement by the counselor really made me sit sit back and think through how we do approach making decisions about what level of intensity and challenge is going to be appropriate for each individual person. And the counselor was verbalizing something we often do, right? And that is to make decisions based on what interests the person, what excites that individual, and what do they feel like doing in that moment or in that season, But let me paint a picture for you to consider. So imagine you're sitting at a banquet hall at a feast table. There's all this food for feasting and all of the dishes before you look fantastic. They fit what you love, what you would love to have and try, and you can't wait to try all of them. You're so hungry, and the banquet is just a dream come true. It's wonderful. So you dive in and you eat because you want to. That really sounds wonderful to you. You are hungry for good food, and it is available to you. It's right in front of you. The banquet is for you. You have been invited to feast. But after a few hours of feasting, you will probably feel just horrible, sick, awful. It'll take some time to recover again. And this is kind of like what we do when we make decisions about our schedule uh, based solely on what sounds good to us uh, or to someone else if they're making those decisions. And um, really that can backfire as far as what actually helps us feel good and centered and just right. Let me give some real life examples for the autistic individual. Examples of this approach include not only this pep rally decision, but also when we ask uh, high schoolers, for example, what do you wanna do after school? What do you want to do once you graduate? Well, these decisions are often based on two things, what the student is interested in and whether they are smart enough or have the academics to pursue this particular topic that interests them. For the autistic student with good grades and a love of animals, for example, the plan may be to go to university to become a veterinarian. The big downfall of this plan is that although the interest in the topic is there and the academic skills are there, the student may need a program that has quite a bit less intensity in it than a pre-vet, vet vet school uh, type of program over these years and also then having to work full-time as a vet to pay off the student debt that they had accrued in pursuing this interesting topic. So the academic and work environment that matches the student's neurology may need to be less intense in order to maintain good regulation and be able to make it through school and last in the occupation while still in a regulated, centered state enough of the time that life really feels manageable. A second example uh, might be a parent who reports that the child who wants so much to go to the movies with the family to see this show that they've been waiting for forever, but even though it's a fun activity that they want to do, the child's behavior is so confusing because the child stalls to leave and they become irritable and picky about who they're sitting next to and who touched them in the car and telling people to be quiet. They make things miserable for everybody, even though it's really something that they wanted to do. It's like a gift that their parents are giving them uh, that they seem to disregard or reject. The behavior is interpreted as a decision, a conscious decision on the part of the child to be oppositional toward others, even though this could have been easy and fun, and it was something the parents really wanted to gift the kids with. However, the parents aren't realizing that the child's neurology is actually struggling to stay centered, to stay regulated with so much adrenaline in this anticipation and the overall stimulus of the situation crushing into the family car, the noise at the theater, the smells that are different. Um, Rather than being oppositional, this behavior is actually a dysregulated state, even though the child so wants to go. Um, It's still too intense. It's still overwhelming. A third example is the adult who takes on extra projects at work because these thrill him and they sound so interesting. It's the whole reason he took this job and he adds and adds and adds to his schedule and he loves every minute of it until he has a huge crash and he has to take a leave of absence to really recover. He's just completely overwhelmed Even though everything sounded so good, and he enjoyed doing it, it really just tipped the scales for his nervous system. So uh, that would be, you know, a third example. So one way to reduce dysregulation is to pay attention to what your whole system needs and not base schedule decisions on what sounds interesting or what you're capable of doing in one area like intellect or academics. But think about what your system needs to regulate, not just for an hour, not just for a day, but across time, across months, across years. Um, And so understand that dysregulation can be just as likely the result of something super interesting and fun as it can be from something that you really don't prefer or you're not looking forward to and you would love to get out of. Number two, in addition to paying attention to the intensity of your daily experiences, consider adding filling, and soothing activities. We'll call them regulating activities. So in the first recommendation, we talked about pacing and not overscheduling intensity. And in this one, we're talking about adding activities that will soothe and calm the nervous system. So I'm not talking about simply taking breaks or, quote, resting, But instead, I'm really talking about using a strategy about what your nervous system finds centering and regulating and adding these. So here we're talking about adding things at intervals to reset your nervous system back to the center throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout the year. So what do I mean by regulating activities? I said before that it's really not just rest breaks. So what is it? Well, This is a really huge topic. And one thing that I do wanna stress is that it should be strategic and intentional. It should not just be taking time out. Um, So some individuals, for example, on the spectrum benefit from activities that provide their system with additional sensory input, input that's calming and centering for them. So sometimes this has to do with pressure in the muscles or the joints. This kind of input is also called proprioceptive input and it gives the brain and the nervous system some signals that help the system reset and center. So specialists working with kids have known this forever and they will tell teachers or parents. You know, when your kid's in this dysregulated state, consider giving them some heavy work. So carrying a heavy backpack, shoveling snow, playing tug of war, that this uh, pressure input into the joints and the muscles can really help the nervous system center a bit more. This is also why people may benefit from using a weighted blanket or laying in a hammock, or this is why a baby may feel calmer when they're being swaddled in a cloth. They get that little bit of pressure that feels calming and centering. Consider, uh, for example, a young adult professional who's on the autism spectrum And she keeps putting off her yoga class because it's really low on the list of priorities. There are other more academic things that seem to need her attention. There are other professional projects, and there are crises that just crop up. And that's really the first thing to get cut off her schedule. But she does say that after yoga, she feels great. Think about all that pressure that you get in the joints and the muscles when you're holding those poses and moving through them. And her system really needs this proprioceptive input to help center itself. So I suggest a very strategic and intentional decision to choose these pressure activities because that is the way to reset your nervous system. And your system needs that. So in this case, the professional knows that she feels better. But it just feels like a luxury to be able to do that. But you do need to make decisions for your system that help you run a marathon rather than a sprint. So if you press through and press through and press through without Um, helping your nervous system regulate and get centered again, you may make it through these short spurts of intensity, but at some point you'll crash and you'll have to take time to recover. So if instead of that intensity and crash cycle, you strategically place these inputs uh, that help your system regroup you're likely to actually go further and get more done and do more of what you enjoy. Your goal is to reset the nervous system little bits across time so that there can be fewer crashes and a shorter recovery period. And in the end, you end up being a lot better off than if you kind of denied your system those things because of other crises. Another type of input that some individuals benefit from is vestibular input. Your brain gets vestibular input when the fluid in your ears move so that when you are moving through space, like swinging, hanging upside down, or spinning, Now, you don't get vestibular input into the nervous system when you're walking on a treadmill because your head is not moving through space, but your system does get vestibular input when you walk or run through the neighborhood. So it's interesting to hear people say, oh, I love riding my bike, but I hate stationary bikes, it's just not the same. Well, what they're probably saying is that their system really needs that vestibular input, and they're just not getting that on a stationary bike, so that completely makes sense, and it's a clue that what they're really needing is some movement added to their um, exercise routine or their daily activities. There is variability in how people respond to sensory inputs, what kind of inputs are safe and healthy for them. And so, really, having that individual know their own system and their physical limitations is important. But let me give you another example just to illustrate that we all do these kinds of things, we're just not intentional about it. So let's take that baby example again where we swaddle the baby, right? So we've got this pressure on the baby that's just gentle enough to be calming. And let's picture that you're holding this baby. So you're holding a baby, they're swaddled, and what are you probably doing? well, you're probably rocking or swaying that swaddled baby because that is what helps the baby calm. Now, when you do that, the baby is not only getting pressure input from the swaddling, but it's also getting this really gentle, predictable vestibular input, and that is calming. Some people feel great after a gentle walk. Others feel great after they ride their bike down Killer Hill. Like they need a lot of fast, intense vestibular input. And other people are like, no, thank you. I just need a little bit of gentle forward bend to get that vestibular input. So that is really individual, and watching what the person already leans toward, what they already do, can help you kind of get some clues about maybe what the body is trying to get. So this may be a person that already loves to skydive, or this may be a person that really loves to swim, and that's going to give them some resistance pressure and also just some gentle uh. Vestibular input as they move through laps. Aside from the sensory inputs that we get with pressure and movement, other things may also be regulating or centering. So one person may feel centered after petting their cat for an hour or listening to a podcast about their favorite topic like history. So these are things that should not only be enjoyable, but also centering. So they don't take your regulation too far in one direction. For example, if something is really interesting to the person, but it's so exciting that they get off center, then that would not be a regulating activity. You want something that helps them feel grounded and centered and back to just right. So this second point about reducing dysregulation is to strategically and mindfully add things to the person's regular routine that helps the nervous system reset uh, and regulate better. So the third final layer of information to consider is that you can use both strategies. So watching the intensity of the inputs that the person's getting and adding regulatory inputs uh, for the same activity, and you can watch and make sure that the person is not all in or all out of one activity. For example, a lot of times people ask my advice about whether they should do such and such activity or not. And let's take an example of an individual on the spectrum who's invited to be a maid of honor at their sister's wedding, and they are kind of thinking, should I do this or not do it? But what I would suggest is that you may want to change the question to, what would it look like for me to be made of honor at the wedding? Or what would it look like for me to meaningfully participate in this wedding? We know that a wedding is likely to be intense as far as the number of people present, the sensory inputs, the emotions involved. And the maid of honor is also likely to be the focus of a lot of attention without the option of just leaving or resting or taking a break. So one of the parts of strategic response to this invitation might be to consider what this woman could do before the wedding to ground her nervous system. So before I do this challenging activity, I'm going to do some regulating activities to try to prep my nervous system to start off in a just-right state. Perhaps the woman decides to skip the rehearsal dinner. Maybe she goes for a swim in the hotel pool because that gentle movement and pressure is regulating for her. She might decide to get a hotel room alone rather than sharing with another relative. So these would be choices, mindful choices she could make um, in talking with the family about how she could participate and still regulate. Then the question would be, what would the ceremony look like? She may consider taking a different role to show love and support while explaining that maid of honor may just be too overwhelming for her, or adjustments could be made to the traditional maid of honor uh, role. So she may only come into the ceremony at specific parts and watch the rest from a quiet space alone. Um, Maybe they could be really mindful about how many photos she has to stand for before just leaving to have some alone time and getting out of that uncomfortable dress. Similarly, adjustments could be made to the rest of the night. So after the ceremony, you know, what can she do to break up the intensity of the night and to have inputs that help her reset and regulate? So in today's episode about reducing the frequency and severity of dysregulation episodes for the autistic individual, we have covered the need to make decisions about your schedule and commitments by including what your nervous system needs, not just what you feel like doing or you think you're interested in or capable of, but we discussed the strategy of adding regulatory inputs like pressure and movement or other grounding activities in spurts to kind of reset the nervous system. And we ended by discussing how important the question of what might this look like For me, uh, being intentional about making a balanced plan and consider how some of the activity could be done without being all in or all out so that you become overwhelmed or that you miss out on some of the goals that you have, that you're wanting to uh, show your sister how much you love her. You're wanting to see some family members and participate. So things don't always have to be all in or all out, and there can be this attention to your goals and to regulation. I hope you join me next time for the third episode of this four-part series on regulation and dysregulation on the autism spectrum, and the topic will focus on strategies for recovering from dysregulation once it hits.